to Luke chapter 12 as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 35 through 48 this morning, and uh, trust that God will speak to our hearts and will bless our time together. So, like last spring, we, uh, a group of us, a group of guys, ended up uh, taking a, a little backpacking trip through the Matazel wilderness. And it was nice. It was a lot of fun. It was very adventurous. And the first day and a half or so wasn't too, too bad. But about midway through the second day, um, the trail disappeared. Not on the map. The trail was right there on the map. Not on the GPS. It was right there on the GPS. And we looked at the GPS and we'd say, yeah, we are standing on the trail right now. And we look below us and there is nothing. So we said, well, we need to go that way. And usually that way meant that way. Straight up that way. We've got to get up over that ridge. And then once we get up over that ridge, perhaps we'll find the trail. So we would go usually straight up that ridge and then we'd get to the top and the trail didn't appear. And it got a little challenging. But as we concluded the second day, we ended up on this really beautiful ridge. And while it was uh, quite a bit of work to get there, it was really a spectacular ridge. But from that ridge, our guides were able to... uh, um, to say, oh, do you see that clump of trees off in the distance? Do you see that grove of, uh, of trees out there? That's where we're going. That's called the park. That's our objective. That's where we're going. And it's like, oh, well, that's not so bad. We can see it from here. You know, but when you're going up ridges and, and crossing gullies and there is no trail and you're just going straight up most of the time, you start to wonder, it's like, Are we even going in the right direction? I mean, I'm hoping we are, but we're out in the middle of nowhere and we could be going in any direction. But once you begin to see that, you're like going, ah, we can start moving in that direction. And then the the following day, as we were making our way to this grove of trees, it was a little bit more encouraging. Still difficult because oftentimes we were bushwhacking through thickets and and then we would find a nice... um, I don't know, wash, but it was straight up also. So uh, we would go straight up. But we kept knowing, well, at least we're moving in the right direction. We're going in the right, even though I can't see it. I saw it before, and we are generally heading in the right direction. And for whatever it's worth, it's like, well, at least we're going in the right direction. And every step I take is taking me a little bit closer to the place I know we need to go. Sometimes having a good perspective is important because um, we are living our lives in expectation of something in the future. And so as we saw what was in the future, we could, even when it got tough, know that, well, we're going in the right direction and know that we're getting closer. And that is our goal. There we have water. There we have shelter. There we have um, relaxation. There we can take a break. And so it was, while difficult, uh, an an opportunity for us to think about things in the future. 
Christians are to live in light of the promises of God, and many of the promises of God are yet future. And so we live in the light of God's promises. We live in the light of God's future plans. He has put them out there. And sometimes when we are struggling and we're working through the thickets and we're going straight up a a mountain to get to a ridge, every once in a while there are great vistas and beautiful overlooks and things like that. But oftentimes we are living in light of the fact that we are at least going in the right direction. And so as we continue our study here in the Gospel of Luke, we saw Last week, just by, by way of context, we saw last week that the disciples had been called to trust God and they were called to trust God by not worrying. And we saw that phrase over and over. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. And today what we are going to look at is how Jesus will unfold. How does trust express itself? Especially in light of God, the fulfillment of God's promises. And so last week was don't worry. Trust. Today we're going to see how does that trust express itself in our lives? How do we express trust in our lives? How do we live a trusting, faithful life in light of God's promises, which are often future? And we don't see them. We're just believing we're going in the right direction. So it's important for us to live prospectively because the nature of the future helps determine present priorities. If you know what the future is, your present priorities will will, will hopefully um, foster um, hope for the future. So the way Jesus is going to, to bring this about is through a variety of pictures and parables. That will be the means he used to encourage his disciples to live with a future perspective. So today I'm going to encourage us all to live in light of God's future promises and to live with a future perspective. So let's go ahead and look at God's word and, and read. Follow along with me as I read in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. This is God's word. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have not left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful servant? Or who, is the, who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and to drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant 
who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And this is God's inerrant word. Well, we begin with this very simple but bold exhortation to be ready. It, Jesus begins this segment with an exhortation and with a parable. And the exhortation is very simple. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. If you have a, a, a King James, it's gird your loins. It's an old phrase, but basically it was... They wore robes in those days and the robes were hard to run in. So they would pull up their robe and kind of tuck it between their legs and they'd free up their legs so that they could run. Gird up your loins. That's the idea. Be free. Be ready to move. Be ready to move quickly. This is an idea. Be ready for action. This extends then to the same idea of keep your lamps burning. In other words, that be constantly ready at any time of the day or night. The disciple then is, the, the per, is one who is looking for the return of Christ at any time, is looking for his master's return. Be ready. It doesn't matter when, what day, what hour, nighttime, daytime, anytime. The disciple is waiting and watching and ready to move. I suppose maybe this has a bit of a, a Passover, an allusion to the Passover. You'll remember that on the night when they were of the Passover, the idea was get ready. Not only be ready with the doorposts and lentils, um, uh, having the blood of the lamb on, on that, but you need to be ready to go. So when it's time to go, you're not sitting around going, wait, I got dishes to wash. I got things to do. Oh, wait a second. Did I get stuff from my neighbor? No, you are ready to roll right now. Time to go. God is coming and God is coming in both judgment and salvation. He is coming in judgment to those who have not followed his word, who have not believed him. And he is coming into salvation to those who have heard the word of God and prepared themselves. But God is coming. And in the moment that he comes, if he has come to your household for salvation, you need to be ready to roll. Jesus begins, stay dressed, ready for action. Doesn't matter what time of the day or the night. Get ready to go. And then he tells this parable. And the parable then is, um, is, is like a faithful servant or like faithful servants. Be like men waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast so that they may open the door to him once he comes and knocks. And blessed are those servants. So be like those who are waiting for their master to return home from a wedding feast. Now, this may sound a little strange to us because we would go to a wedding and say, well, it starts at noon and it'll probably go till you know, maybe 1, 1.30. There'll be a reception. I'll be home around 4 or something like that. But in the days in which Jesus was speaking, a wedding feast could last as long as a week. And so you don't know what time the master of the house is coming home. In other words, the length of the wedding made the return of the master unpredictable, but the faithful servants were the ones waiting and watching so that whenever 
The master returned home. They were ready to serve him and minister to him and take care of his needs. This is the the picture or the parable then that Jesus is saying, just be ready because you don't know what time he's coming back. You don't know what time the, the... He's going to be returning to his household. Your job is not to figure out the time. Your job is to be ready. And I love this. Blessed are those servants. By the way, we'll see that phrase throughout this this reading. Blessed are those servants. That is, the object of God's pleasure are those who are found waiting for him and their readiness is rewarded with communion with God. The master, when he comes home, they are blessed. Why are they blessed? They are blessed because now the master is home and they are communing with the master of the household. But look at this very interesting and very unusual twist. Did you catch it? And when he comes, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. Do you know who the he is there? Is the master of the house. And them is the servant. So here's this very interesting little twist. And usually when Jesus tells a parable, there's usually some little unexpected um, point in it. And certainly this would have caught everybody off guard. It certainly caught me off guard. Because when the master comes home and the servants are ready for him, you would think then that the servants then minister to the needs of the master. But here the master turns around and serves the servants. What? Again, I can imagine the crowd going, what is this? The master actually becomes the servant. His pleasure is so great This is why it says, blessed are those servants. They're blessed because now, actually, the master of the household begins. He dons servant garments and he begins to wait upon them. This is probably very similar to our passage in Psalm 23. You've all read Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. But did you notice that down in verse 6, that that there's a little shift there. And he prepares a table in the presence of my... And now, all of a sudden, God becomes the host and he begins to hose and he puts uh, and, and he uh, he anoints my head with oil. He's he's now serving me. He's preparing a table in the presence of my enemy. He's now anointing my head with oil. And he is. Um, and this is when I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So certainly we see this idea of the Lord serving his people. And of course, perhaps the most um, picturesque picture we see in this is in John 13:5, where Jesus um, gets down and washes his disciples' feet. Here, the Lord of the universe serves his creatures. Actually serves the very ones who are going to be denying him. Not only Judas' feet, but the feet of Peter, the feet of all of those who run away from him. Here, the master comes and serves Jesus is telling this parable, blessed are you who are so ready that when he comes, you're not caught off guard. You are the blessed ones. And one of the ways you are going to be blessed, not only will you commune with the master, but the master actually serves and ministers on your behalf. This is a complete acceptance. This is just total acceptance. And it's highly unusual. 
But this shows the extent of God's grace and it shows the extent of God's love that he would do that. What a fascinating little twist to that parable. So stay dressed. Be ready for action. Keep your lamps burning. You are the blessed ones. You're living prospectively. You're living in light of God's certain future promises. And then Jesus, just in case you didn't get that, tells another parable. And it's a further call. Basically, he's going to repeat himself. If you didn't get that metaphor, let me give you another one. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have not left his house to be broken into. So you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. So basically, now the metaphor turns to a thief. And if you knew what time the thief was coming, you wouldn't have left your house unguarded to be broken into. Right? I mean, that makes sense. Right? If you know the thief's coming at two in the morning, then you know, you're there with locked and loaded. We can say that in Payson, right? In Pine, in this area. That's... But here's the thing. You don't know that the thief is coming at two in the morning. So what do you do? You lock your doors. Well, maybe don't do that in Pine and Strawberry too much, but you get an alarm. Because you don't know when he's coming. So what do you do? You make preparations. You make preparations so that since I don't know that if and when a thief may come, I'm going to make preparations just in case he does. We did that. Simone and I were dealing with issues of our um, her parents' estate. And so there were some some challenges with a, with, with a house. And, man, we got security. We had cameras. We had motion detectors, we had all kinds of stuff. Why? Because somebody was going to break in and we just needed to make sure that we were ready and prepared. Because we didn't know when it was going to happen, but we were ready and we were prepared. We all do that. And that's the, that's the, that's the picture. You don't know. Therefore, you, we need to be persistently ready. In fact, the risk of being unprepared is great. So that's the uh, first part of this text. Be ready. Be dressed for action. Keep your lamp burning. Be like people waiting for their master to come home. And blessed are those who, regardless of what hour of the day or night he comes, you're ready. Be prepared. And then um, we come to this reason for readiness. And Peter has this interesting question. Peter, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all. I love Peter. I can't help but think that Peter's one of these guys that if you've been in school uh, at some point, the, the professor's like lecturing on and thinking what he or she believes are brilliant points. And a hand goes up in the back. Teacher, is this going to be on the test? In other words, do I need to be listening to you or can I zone out a little bit more? I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what Peter, that's what comes across to me. Peter's like, Lord, great point. 
do, do we need to be listening to this or can we kind of like hang out over here and update our social media or something like that? So, Peter, Lord, do we really need to know this? Is this for us or is this for everybody? Well, certainly, um, there's been a, there's a whole lot of discussion about the answer to Peter's question. Are you telling this parable for us or for everybody? And I think I'm not going to get it. Well, I know I'm not going to get into that discussion right now. But I will say this. Certainly Christian leaders are targeted. In other words, when he says, is this for us? Is this for us disciples, the 12? Or is this for everybody, the common, everybody who's listening to your speech? I would have to say certainly Christian leaders are targeted. But when we get to the section on judgment, it would inform us that Jesus is also including everybody in this. So I guess if you're saying, can I zone out right now? Is this for me? I would say just listen up. All right. Follow along with me. I think it's for all of us. Don't you love that? And then Jesus tells this parable. Don't you love how Jesus deals with the question, is this for us or for, for everybody? And he doesn't say yes or no. He just goes on and he tells a parable. In other words, I think the idea here is listen up. Stop worrying about that. Just take this information, apply it to your lives. And he begins to tell this parable regarding um, stewards or, or household managers. And he talks about the faithful and good steward or the faithful and good manager. And he contrasts it with the evil manager or the evil servant or the wicked servant. And I guess before we... Um, unpack that, we should probably describe for ourselves or define what exactly a household manager was or some of your translations say a steward or something along those lines. We should probably figure out or or identify what we mean by a, a manager or a steward. And basically it's this. A steward or a household manager was pretty much a slave who looked out for the welfare of other slaves. He was put in charge to take care of other slaves. He was not given authority. He was not given the, uh, the authority to exercise power. That wasn't his job. His job was not to boss people around. His job was to care for the other slaves. His job was to make sure that everybody else had the food and the clothing and the necessities that they needed to be able to do the jobs that they were commissioned to do. That was his job. Make sure that everybody else is fed. Make sure that everybody else is clothed. Make sure that everybody else has their um, fair distribution of those things that I am providing for them. That's your job. Make sure they get what I have provided for them. And so we see now a distinction or a contrast between the good household manager, the good steward, versus the wicked steward. And first of all, we see that the good steward is blessed. Blessed is that servant. We see that phrase numerous times in this text. Blessed is that person whom his master will find so doing when he comes. The one who exercises faithful servant in patient anticipation of the return of the master is the blessed steward, is the blessed manager. 
The one who is blessed is the one who exercises faithful service in patient anticipation. But I love the statement where he says, blessed is is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. In other words, serving the Lord is waiting on the Lord is not a passive activity. So when we say, I'm going to wait on the Lord, that does not mean that we just sit in our easy chair and do nothing. Waiting is doing. It involves active service of those responsibilities entrusted to him. That is, it is constant service to the Lord our God. It is active service. So when we are waiting in anticipation of the master's return, it is one of um, active service. God has given us responsibilities. God has given us tools. God has given us resources. God has given us gifts. And it is the active um, service of utilizing those things that God has given to us. It is constant. And then we will see a very interesting statement where he says, Blessed is that servant whom his master finds doing so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And here we get into the, the reward then of the faithful steward, the faithful manager. That is further responsibility after the return of the master. Life after Jesus' return, that is what we might call the eternal state, is also not passive. Scripture is not entirely clear as to what actually happens in the eternal state and what we are going to be doing or not doing. But here's what I can tell you. Scripture does inform us very clearly, at least what we will not be doing. This idea that we're going to be sitting on clouds um, doesn't exist. Here's another thing that really doesn't exist, that... I do believe that we will be, let me be careful on this. I do believe that we will ever be praising God, but I don't know if it's going to be eternity singing before the throne of God because the Bible seems to speak of us doing stuff. He, he seems to speak of us having tasks and jobs and, 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 and things that we're doing and administrating and things like that. And so I don't know exactly. The Bible isn't entirely clear, but it does seem to have this idea that Jesus is ruling over this new creation and he is employing administrators to aid in that administration. Jesus is ruling and reigning and he has administrators then who are actively participating in that rule and in that reign. And we see this in passages like 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3 where it talks about, don't you know you'll judge angels? And then also in the parable, I think of the 10 minors where it says, um, this one will be given 10 more cities. You, you are faithful um, in this. You'll be given more responsibility in the age to come. So it has this idea. There seems to be this idea of working and, and managing perhaps much like Adam did when Adam was in the first creation. He just kind of just didn't sit around and eat grapes and enjoy. He was working. He was called to tend the garden. He was tend to, uh, to organize it and to name the animals and to do all these things. He had tasks to do. It seems to me that in the new creation, there will be tasks to do. 
while I won't speculate on what is unclear, I will exhort you in what is clear. What is clear is blessed is that servant who exercises faithful servants, service and patient anticipation. That is, let us not be passive in the things that God has called us to do. We are not called to sit around and do nothing. We are called to serve him actively. However that may be, everybody's gifted a little bit differently. This is set in contrast to the, to the wicked steward. And we see the wicked steward abuses the other servants. Instead of providing for their needs, instead of making sure they have the, their distribution of food and their distribution of clothing and their necessities taken care of, instead of taking care of other servants, rather, this steward abuses the other servants. He's unconcerned with his master's return. In fact, he acts like his master will never return. He simply lives for himself. And he simply lives um, to use others for his own self-fulfillment. There's a great picture of this in Ezekiel chapter 34 of the wicked shepherds who simply abuse the sheep. And this is the one then who is living as though the master will never return. He is not ready. But here's the surprise. The surprise is the master does return. One day after a long absence, at a time when he did not expect, at a time where he thought that he could just enjoy uh, his self, his selfish uh, life, the Lord returns. The consequences? Well, there's no blessing. There's no reward. Jesus does not serve him at the banqueting table. Rather, Jesus portrays a very graphic consequence. Basically, it says he cuts him into pieces and puts him with the unfaithful. Ultimately, this is utter and complete rejection by the Lord. I would include in that group those who would destroy God's temple, which we see in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Those who would destroy God's, God's church, because that's a reference to the corporate body, to false teachers. They do not end up in heaven. They are exposed as the deceivers that they truly are, and they experience the worst degree of punishment imaginable. And then Jesus goes on to this very somewhat perplexing statement of these other degrees of unfaithfulness. And he talks about those who knew the master's will, but do not act on it. In other words, these are, they're, they're not in blatant disregard of the master's will, but perhaps those who are just poor stewards. Maybe they hear the truth and ignore it, procrastinate, and it says they receive light uh, they receive great light, but they fail to act on it, and they are judged, but it's not total judgment. Um, I think the idea here is those who, who know God's truth, but just don't, don't do it. I remember one time we were skiing, and I was on a chairlift with, with this guy, and um, found out that, the, um, that I was a pastor, and he goes, oh yeah, I really, you know, I really like teaching the Bible. I think God... God has wanted me to teach the Bible, but I stopped doing it. 
He said, why? And he read that passage that says, um, those who teach God's word will be held to a higher standard than those who don't. He said, man, that just scared me. And so I decided not to teach. And I'm thinking, well, if God's called you to teach and you're flat out rebelling, and what kind of, <laughs> I don't know, what kind of judgment are you going to face for that? Wouldn't you rather, I, I don't know, it's just all convoluted to me. But I'm thinking, God is. God has called you to do something and you're acting. I'm not questioning your salvation. I am questioning your wisdom. God has called you and gifted you. And you're saying, I'm not going to do it for fear that I'm going to have some higher set of standards to meet. And the chairlift came to an end and that was all I saw of him. And I went about my day crashing and falling down the mountain. I think the idea is this is the poor steward, the one who's been gifted and will not use their gifts for the service of the God who's called them. And they will receive some judgment. Then it talks about those who have have little knowledge. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. The idea here then is... They really don't know the master's will. Notice there are so consequences, but it's certainly less severe. There are people who just don't know the master's will. Sometimes we experience this, in a, especially when we, when we go on the mission field. But, you know, people have very, very little understanding of what it would mean. You'll see pastors of churches, and they have no idea what it means to be a pastor of a church. They just happen to be the only Christian in in their community. So it's like, well, you're the pastor or you have Bible or something along those lines or you've been a Christian a month and nobody else has been a Christian as long as you, so you're the person. You're it. They don't know. Or sometimes even worse, they've been influenced by um, American or Western religious broadcasting and they serve the Lord by what they've seen on TV and heard on the radio, which is often really bad. That's all they know. And that's what they think Christian ministry is. They know they don't have really any knowledge. Notice there are still consequences, but it's less severe. And this is a really challenging passage of text, but I think we do find some help for us in 1 Corinthians 3.15, which is one... You may have looked at it at some point. It says, Paul is talking about people whose work will endure and people whose work will not endure um, in the eternal state. And I'll start with verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The idea is sometimes we do things that just, that they, they don't appear to have any eternal lasting value, and they'll be burned up. It's not talking about the person's salvation, but it's like what they've done just kind of 
burns up and is of no value. However, others build with good materials and it will last into eternity. And so the idea then they are saved, but as through fire. I think the bottom line is this, is that the more one knows, the more culpability a person has. To whom much is given, much is required. Now, we, we live in a society, in a culture, where we have the gospel all around us. We have no reason whatsoever, no excuse whatsoever to say that I am ignorant of the things of Scripture. How many Bibles do you have in your house? How many Bibles do you have on your phone? You can say none, but I can tell you right now, I'll tell you about two or three apps that you can get about a thousand Bibles on your phone right now. I think we're going to be, there's some culpability there. We have a responsibility to know the things that God has said. I, I would pray that by coming to this church that, that we, our services are, are centered around God's word. I, I don't know if you noticed, but our prayers today were all God's word. Um, that our Bible reading was God's word. Preaching is God's word. We, we, we sing God's word. It's centered around God's word. And I would say this, though, that a heart that is transformed by Christ loves Christ and desires his fellowship. And I pray that we would be people who would aspire, because I can say, see somebody saying, well, I'm just going to stay ignorant. My thinking is, do you love Christ? Why wouldn't you want to know more and more about him? I mean, we do that in our human relationships, Right? when we love a person, when we love our wives or our husbands or our soon-to-be wives or husbands, we, we want to know them. We want to know what makes them tick, what their loves are, what their joys are, what their pains are, what frustrates them. That way I can avoid the things that frustrate them, the things that hurt them, and, and I can do the things that bring them joy and pleasure. Why would it be when we would come to Christ saying, well, I'll just try to stay ignorant. That way I won't be culpable. I pray that God would transform our hearts so that we would love him in such a way. What brings you joy? What hurts you? What nailed you to the cross? Those I'm going to put behind me. I'm going to pray for strength that I not do those things and and love those things that nailed you to a cross and only love those things that bring you joy and uh, so I pray that our hearts would be be such that they would be soft towards the things of God and in such a way then that we would serve the people of God that we would be people then who who realize God has gifted me. He's gifted me in these particular areas and therefore I'm going to distribute to God's people what God has gifted me. And he's gifted all of us differently. I I see, you know, Judy's downstairs teaching kids. It's like, you don't want me doing that. Sometimes Dave Callahan asked me to come and teach chapel at the... uh, at the Christian school, junior high. Oh my goodness. Do you know how frightening that is? You have no idea. 
I can teach in a seminary with students. That's fine. But junior high kids, oh my goodness, what am I going to say to them? That's frightening to me. Judy's downstairs and, and she just nails it. Some of you have other gifts and other abilities that, that, that I don't have. Some of you are so sensitive to, to, to people's needs and, and you see people hurting and it's like, man, I miss it by a mile. I'm pretty sympathetic and empathetic when I know about it, but usually I'm just like kind of dense to needs. Once I know a need, it's like, oh, I'm pretty good at that. But somebody, sometimes people have to knock me over the head. But some of you just, man, you see things. You're just so good at that. Serve the Lord in that area. Serve Christ in the way that he's, he's enabled and empowered and gifted you. Be a good steward of those things. And you will be the blessed servant. The one that brings joy to his master. And amazingly enough, will actually prepare a banqueting table for you and anoint your head with oil. So I'll close with this. There are some, there are some things in this passage text that are, are, are challenging. They're, they're not, they're just hard to get a hold of. But let me close with some things that are not hard to get a hold of, some things that are certain, some things that are concrete. And the first thing that is utterly and completely concrete is, number one, Jesus returns. All right, that's, that's concrete. That's not really, we don't have to worry about that one. That's there. The second one is Jesus is Lord. Okay, Jesus is Lord. The, and the third one is that we are his servants. And I put here, don't confuse those two things. That's our big problem. We confuse those two things. We used to have a, um, a gentleman here, and I, I don't think, other than maybe Dixie, I don't think anybody maybe remembers Lee, um, Lee McClanahan. A few people remember Lee McClanahan. And I always say, I always say, Lee McClanahan, uh, I call it Lee's axiom, and I've told you this before, but Lee's axiom was this. He said, John, here's how we serve the Lord. You've got to remember two things. God is management and we're labor. If you get those two things figured out, serving the Lord makes a lot of sense. He's, man, he's the one who tells us what to do. We're the ones who do the work. We do not ask him why or how or when or any of that thing. He says, do this and you do it. You do not try to say, well, Lord, I really think that's not the best way of managing this universe. Let me interject my opinion on how this goes. No, Lee would tell you, he's management. Let him manage. He does a really good job at it. Your labor, he's gifted you for the labor. Do what he's called you to do. Jesus is master, Lord. We are servants. Don't confuse the two. Lee's axiom. He's management. We're labor. Get that straight. And then finally, we're to live in light of these truths, that Christ will return, that he is the Lord. We're the servants. Now, how will we live in light of these future truths? We know the destination we're going. Sometimes we get bogged down in the thicket. Sometimes the ridge seems way too high. Sometimes that... um, We're just bearing under a heavy load, but we see where we're going. We know the direction we're going. And so we continue to march on. We continue to walk on in light of the promises that God has given us. Let's spend the next few moments in just quiet reflection and think and allow the Lord maybe to speak to us and maybe um, imprint some of these things into our hearts and our lives.
Now, our Father, we give you praise and thanks for your word. We give you praise and thanks that you are the Lord of the universe. We give you praise and thanks that you are the one who is coming again. And we give you praise and thanks that we are your people called by your name, that we are your people and you are our God. And so with that, Lord God, we will now stand and sing and bless your holy name. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>